today as we continue our study through the Gospel of Luke. We are looking at the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. You can find that in our uh, cart Bibles on page 859. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and while you're turning there, uh, I hope um, that you are as delighted as I am sometimes uh, to see, quite unbeknownst to us and, and outside of our planning, the way that our Old and New Testament scriptures align uh, with what we're studying together in our sermon series. We made the switch a while ago simply to go sequentially through Old and New Testament books, and so we've been going through a large chunk of the, uh, I was about to say the Gospel of Isaiah, and sometimes it feels that way. Uh, but today we read these words in Isaiah chapter 49. Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? What a good question. For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued, for I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. That is a good way to begin our thinking as we turn to see Christ uh, walking into the wilderness and doing battle with the devil. Uh, and so today we are reading Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, a familiar passage, uh, and seeing our Lord Christ Jesus tempted on our behalf in the wilderness. Before we read this word of God together, please join me in prayer. <clears throat> oh, gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the picture that it gives us of Christ, our Savior. We thank you for the picture that it gives us of ourselves. We thank you for the way that uh, in seeing ourselves, we see our need for our Savior. So show us ourselves, O Lord. By your word, expose us and lay us bare, but do not leave us with that image, but cause us to see Christ, cause us to rejoice in him, the one offered up for us in perfect obedience to the Father. We pray that you would do this for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add 
a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Folks, how far would you go to fix a broken relationship? You all know what it is to have a relationship go sour. It might be that some of you know the pain of, of living in the midst of a dissolving marriage. Some of you know what it is to love an estranged child. Certainly, you at least know those hang-ups and, and those misunderstandings that we all fall into from time to time, but how far would you go to restore a relationship that is worth saving? How many times would you say, I'm sorry? How many shortcuts would you avoid in the process? How many phone calls would you make? How many changes would you make in your own life in order to make space for reconciliation? It's true, of course, not every relationship is worth saving. There's some acquaintances it's better just not to be acquainted with, but I'm not talking about those. I'm asking about those people that you cannot do without, those people in your life that when you think about what life would be like without them, your knees get weak, and your world seems dark, and, and a whole disconnected, miserable future flashes before your eyes. How far would you go to restore a relationship with someone you could not do without? That's the question that we need to have in our mind as we consider this passage. It's a question that we need to ask because that is the question that drove Jesus out into the wilderness. Don't hear me incorrectly. I'm not saying that, that Jesus needs us in the way that we feel like we need other people. Jesus is not pining for the unrequited love of his elect. He's not, he's not incomplete without his people, but... He did go into the wilderness to bring about reconciliation. Jesus' temptation by the devil is just part of the shadow of this much larger question that hangs over his entire ministry, and that question hanging over Jesus' ministry is, how far will I go to restore the elect? And so when you read this passage, the question you need to have in mind is, how far would Jesus go to reconcile his people? There are other questions that we ask when we read this pretty familiar passage. Important questions. We ask personal questions. Questions like, how can I learn to resist temptation by watching the way that Jesus resists temptation? That's an important question. We need to know how to resist the schemes of the devil. We need to learn how to take up the sword of the Spirit. We need to be aware of the one who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We need to learn how to resist temptation like Jesus did. But the truth is that unless Jesus did for you what he did in the desert, you have no ability to withstand temptation on your own. You have no strength to stand under temptation apart from Jesus Strength. You have no skill to wield the sword of the Spirit unless His hand by the Spirit is guiding your hand. And the truth is that if Jesus has not overcome the wiles of Satan in the wilderness, your resistance is futile. And so the very first, the most important question that we have to ask when we read this passage is, how far did Jesus go? What sacrifices was he willing to make on behalf of his people? Those other questions, they're, 
worth our consideration as well. And so this is your fair warning. I promise I tried to fit it into one, but this is your fair warning that today is the beginning of a two-part series on resisting temptation. Today, Lord willing, we are going to narrow our focus on the victory that Jesus has won on behalf of his people over the world and the flesh and the devil. And next week, uh, Lord willing, we will come back and learn some of the tactics of resistance that we find from the Lord as he, he leads us through the wilderness of our own sin. But today, we want to engage with this question, how far would Jesus go to restore his people? And, and with that in mind, I want to suggest that we're going to see two things, two people, really, in this passage. We're going to focus on uh, our tempted Savior, and we're going to focus, secondly, on our conquered enemy. Our tempted Savior and our conquered enemy. Now, we, believe, we begin with Jesus, our tempted Savior, the beloved Son of God who was led into the wilderness to be tempted on our behalf. And if we were reading Mark's gospel at this point, this is when you would get Mark's favorite word immediately. You may be aware, Mark is the gospel for people in a hurry. Everything is always happening immediately. Immediately it happened, and immediately they went there. And we read in Mark chapter 1, verse 12, that after the, the baptism, immediately the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And there is a sense of burning urgency in what Jesus is doing. And Luke, in his own way, is capturing a sense of that urgency when he connects the wilderness to the Jordan. We see it in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And we've just read in the last chapter how the Word of God brought John the Baptist out of the wilderness and into the Jordan. And now the Spirit of God is sending Jesus in the opposite direction. Away from the Jordan, away from the baptism, and out into the wilderness where he will do battle with the devil. Out into the waste places. And Jesus is walking away at this point in the narrative. He's walking away from divine recognition in the sight of the multitudes when all the people could simply have fallen at his feet with the voice of God coming out of the heavens and instead he walks off into isolation and hunger and spiritual warfare. And if you were there, what would you expect to see as you watch Jesus walking off into the desert? Would you expect to see his head down and his feet shuffling slowly? Would you, would you expect to see him walking away in a, a sort of slow resignation? Or would it be more of a march? Would Jesus be walking out into the desert, into the wilderness like a general with steel in his spine? Would he be walking out like a warrior going out to battle? That's what you would see. You would see Jesus going off into the wilderness like a warrior. Jesus on a mission. And this mission is one to regain, in part, what Adam has lost. There's no coincidence in the context of this passage. Luke has very purposely put his genealogy that we looked at briefly last week. He's put his genealogy directly between Jesus' commissioning and his commencement. In Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descends upon him, the Spirit of, of life and of power, the Spirit of sonship and of heavenly delight. And then, through 76 generations, Jesus is connected all the way back to that first man. That first man who was formed from the dust of the ground and fashioned into a body and 
filled with life by the breath of God himself. And God created that first man and put him in a paradise and he was pleased with him. He said, this is good. This is very good. This is the son, the first son that I've created. And in, in Adam, I am well pleased. In Adam, that first man was made perfectly. He was endowed perfectly. He had an earthly paradise. He had heavenly communion. And then temptation came, and sin followed, and communion was destroyed, and the paradise was lost. But now what we see is Jesus, the true Son of God, pleasing to the Father, full of the Spirit, going off into the wilderness. This wilderness cursed by the fall, doing battle with that ancient serpent, and so Milton sings, a recovered paradise to all mankind by one man's firm obedience fully tried. Through all temptation and the tempter foiled, in all his wiles defeated and repulsed, and Eden raised in the waste wilderness. That's what we see. We see Jesus going into the wilderness because he's on a mission to regain what Adam has lost. He's on a mission to obey where Israel has failed. One of the most striking features about the account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is the way that Jesus responds to Satan with pure, unadorned scripture. Three times Satan tempts, three times Jesus quotes. It is written. There's a finality about it. He is not, he's not playing around. He's not bringing in nuance. He simply says, the Lord has said, and I will obey. Now, there's a, a side note there, and Lord willing, we'll come back to it next week. There's something that we ought to learn about the power of hiding God's word in our hearts so that we might not sin against him. But what you notice, if you look down, and if your Bible has footnotes, if it tells you these scriptures that Jesus is quoting, what you recognize about these three times that Jesus says, it is written, it is written, it is said, is that he's quoting scriptures all from the same book. And quite frankly, he's quoting scriptures all from one tiny little subsection of the book of Deuteronomy. He quotes first Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, and then Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, and then Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. And it's in this uh, beginning portion of Deuteronomy in these early chapters that Moses is standing with the people on the brink of the promised land, right on the border, and he is recounting to them the narrative of their wandering in the wilderness. He's reminding them of God's discipline. He is warning them against sin by recounting to them the record of their failure. And this is what Jesus is leaning on as he does uh, battle with the devil. Now the first uh, scriptural defense that Jesus employs is uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but uh, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And you know the situation. This is Satan coming to him and enticing him to create bread in the wilderness to meet his physical needs. But listen to the original context of this first quote that Jesus gives us. This is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. I'm just backing up just one verse. Moses said to the people, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. 
and he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Does that sound familiar to you? Israel is led in the wilderness 40 years. Jesus is led, actually it says in Luke, not into the wilderness, but Jesus is led in the wilderness, that is, through the wilderness, for 40 days. And Israel was humbled, and Jesus was humbled, and Israel was allowed to hunger, and Jesus was allowed to hunger, and the tempter shows up, and all of creation is watching and waiting to see what was in his heart, to see whether he would obey the voice of the Lord or not. Now we know how it turned out for Israel, don't we? Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 and 3, just a few days after the crossing of the Red Sea, tells us the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots. Oh, we ate bread to the full, and you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That's how they responded when they were humbled, when their hearts were open to see what was in it, to see whether they would follow the commands of the Lord or not, they grumbled and they complained, oh, that the Lord had just killed us at the beginning because we can't put up with this and the hunger. What about Jesus? How did he respond? What was in Jesus' heart? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And so what is in Jesus' heart is the word of God. That's what sustains Jesus through the waste places, in the, in the time of temptation, in the time of hunger, in the time of famine, in 40 days in the wilderness eating nothing. He's sustained by the truth of God, by his promises, by his commandments. Even when there was no bread, even when he was tested and hungry and weary from wandering. And yes, Jesus could have turned the stones into bread. Small thing. Just as easily as he stilled the storm, just as easily as he cured the leper, just as easily as he raised the dead with a word, he could have turned the stones into bread, but he didn't. He stood firm. He stood firm because he was not in the wilderness to provide for himself. But he was there on a mission to regain what Adam had lost and to obey where Israel had sinned. It was his mission to destroy the works of Satan. That's why Jesus went in the wilderness. That's what 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 tells us. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's what he's doing in the wilderness. He is unraveling the handiwork of the devil thread by thread. He is dismantling the curse that has come upon creation because of human sin. And he's doing it by establishing his own perfect obedience that in time he will offer up to the Father as a sacrifice for sinners to break the bonds of iniquity and temptation and rebellion. And Jesus is proving that he is the thief who has come to bind the strong man and begin to plunder his property. That, by the way, is what we'll see as we go through the rest of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, Jesus will begin his ministry and he goes everywhere and he begins to cast out the demons. Why? Because he is destroying the works 
of the devil. So no, Jesus didn't go quietly and reluctantly into the desert. He went on a mission to regain what Adam had lost and to obey where Israel had failed and to destroy the works of the devil. But what's amazing, you might notice, what's amazing about this is the way that Jesus arms himself for this battle. Sometimes when we read this passage, we get the, uh, the temptation for ourselves, we get the idea in our minds that the reason that Jesus seems so ably to overcome the works of the evil one is that he was simply relying on the fact that he was divine, he was God incarnate. Of course he doesn't fall to temptation because he's God. And maybe if you were God, you wouldn't fall to temptation either, but that's not the case. And in fact, if Jesus had relied on his status, if he had relied on his identity as the Son of God, he would have been playing right into the devil's hands. That's what he wanted from him. You notice that two of these temptations, it shows up in verse 3, it shows up in verse 9, the devil says to him, if you are the Son of God. Now, we don't need to get lost in the nuances of biblical Greek, but what you need to know is that the way that this conditional clause works is that the, the devil is not casting doubt on this, but he's actually assuming it to be true. We might be able to, to translate it, since you are. Since you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. You see, the devil is not doubting Jesus' identity. In fact, he's not even tempting Jesus to doubt his identity, but what this, the devil is doing is he's tempting Jesus to presume his identity. That's the temptation. Why don't you live in accord with your status? You're the son of God, right? Why are you out here hungry, and why are you out here alone? Why are you wandering through the desert? Why are you going through all this? You're the son, aren't you? Why don't you force God's hand to pamper you and to care for you and to give you all that you deserve if you're the son of God? Why don't you flex your divine muscle a little bit? Why don't you just pull rank? That's what he's telling him, since you're the son of God. You see, Satan wants Jesus to rely on his identity. He wants him to resist temptation like the God he is and not like the people he came to save. But that's not what Jesus does. How does Jesus arm himself for battle with the devil? He arms himself with humility. He arms himself with humanity, actually. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. You see, Jesus did battle with the devil the way that humans have to. With his own reserves as a man and with the full armor of God that every believer has access to. He was guided by the Spirit and he spent time in fasting and prayer for 40 days. He girded up his loins with the belt of truth and he took up the shield of faith in the Lord and his promises and that's how he extinguished the darts of the evil one. He struck a deadly blow with the sword of God's word and yes, he did it so that next week, Lord willing, we can come and we can learn to resist temptation the same way that Jesus resisted temptation but first and foremost, he did battle with Satan on human terms because he was doing it on our behalf. 
do you notice the way that Jesus responds to that first temptation? The devil says, if you are the son of God, cause this stone to become bread. And what's the first word that Jesus gives? It is written, man. You see what he's doing there? He said, I'm not, I'm not playing with those rules. I've come to be identified with humanity. In fact, that, that's the word. It, it, it could be, if you, you want to get sensitive about gender issues, it could be translated humanity, not man, because it's the word anthropos, and it means all of, of humanity. And he's saying, this is the rule that the Lord has given to humanity that he's created, and I'm going to be there in this structure and with those rules. And man doesn't live by bread alone. And so I'm going to do what humanity has to do, and I'm going to do battle in human terms. Because the question in Jesus' mind is not, what does the Son of God deserve? But rather the question is, what do the sons and the daughters of Adam need? Well, we need a human Savior. We need a human Savior who renders human obedience to save us from our very human sin. And that's the question, how far will Jesus go to bring about reconciliation? Is Jesus willing to set aside his entitlements? Is he willing to set aside his status? Will he identify himself with the people that he came to save? Will he submit himself to temptation on their behalf? That's what Jesus is doing in the wilderness. In the power of the Spirit, in the desolation of the wilderness, he is enduring human temptation because our Savior came to be tempted on our behalf. That's our first point. We've considered now our tempted Savior, but let's turn to consider the, the tempter himself our conquered enemy. Now, the fact that, that we can gather here in this room and, and I can say a phrase like the tempter himself and you agree with, with what I'm saying or maybe you don't agree with what I'm saying, but just by virtue of using that phrase, that separates us from a whole lot of people and a lot of other religious groups that we can talk about Satan as an entity, as a, a real person. Perhaps you saw the commotion this week in the news about that new monument that's been erected in the Illinois uh, State Capitol building. There in the rotunda, they said it's a public place, and so different groups are allowed to set up different uh, displays for the holiday season. And so one group has set up a very large Christmas tree, and another group has set up a menorah, and, and some people didn't think that that was broad enough, and so there's another monument that's been set up. And it's a bronze statue of a woman's arm, and the woman's arm is holding an apple, and there's a serpent wound around her wrist, and underneath there's a plaque that says, knowledge is the greatest gift. And it was set up there by the Chicago uh, temple, uh, the Chicago chapter of the Satanic Temple, right there in the state capitol building. It fits. If you read anything about the Satanic Temple, it fits their normal offensive pattern of trying to force Christians to give public space to celebrate religious pluralism. But I'll let you, over lunch, talk about what kinds of displays should show up in Capitol buildings. That's not really all that interesting to me. But what is interesting to me is that when you go on the website of the Satanic Temple, which, not surprisingly, is headquartered in Salem, Mass., but when you go on the website... When you go on the website of the Satanic Temple, they will tell you very clearly the fact that they do not believe in a personal entity known as Satan or the devil. They will tell you that they are not only atheistic, but they are anti-supernaturalists. 
They do not believe in a God. They do not believe in a devil, even though they think that Satan is, well, a helpful metaphor to sort of shake people up and cause them to question societal and religious norms. And so you know how it goes, right? That old saying. The greatest trick the devil ever played is convincing the world that he doesn't exist, and we're at the point where the Satanists don't even believe in Satan. But we do. And if you are reading your scriptures, you have to admit that the first thing that you need to know about the devil is that he is real. Unabashedly, he is real. He is personal. He is a personal entity. He is the real, personal, malevolent enemy of God and of his people. The scriptures tell us that Satan is that ancient serpent who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. Tells us that he is the accuser of the brethren. He is the lion who seeks to devour whomever he can. The scriptures tell us that the devil is the dragon who makes war with the church and her children. He is the one who struck Job's body in the hope that he could make him take his wife's terrible advice and just curse God and die already. And you only need to look at the way that Luke chapter 4 portrays Satan as one who tempts and speaks and leads and shows and even quotes scripture to admit that this is a real person that we're talking about here. He appeared to Christ in the wilderness and he tempted him to sin. And the New Testament reminds us that he will appear, maybe not physically as he did in the wilderness with Christ, but he will appear to each one of us to tempt us to sin in disobedience of the Lord as well. Dear friends, if you are taking your Bible even halfway seriously, you need to conclude that the devil is real. You also need to conclude that the devil is powerful. One of the things you notice, uh, one of the interesting things about the course of the interaction between Jesus and the devil is that Jesus never stops to correct the lies of the evil one. He doesn't correct him uh, when he takes scripture out of context. He doesn't correct him when he utters blasphemies. He doesn't correct him even when he claims to hold the power and the glory of the kingdoms of the world. Did you notice it in verses 5 and 6? There is this very bold claim. It says the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and all their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Now, it could be. It could be that Jesus does not correct Satan here on this point, because he knows it's no use arguing with someone for whom uh, lies and deception are their native tongue. It could be that that's why he doesn't correct him, but it also could be that there is an element of truth in what Satan is saying. Consider the way that, again, the New Testament speaks of Satan and his influence. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, the God of this world, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. 1 John uh, chapter 5, verse 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Folks, these are the words of apostles, not Old Testament prophets who haven't yet seen the full revelation. These are post-resurrection apostles who are warning us 
that Satan is still out there and he's still mobile and he's still pulling strings on the world stage and tempting and enticing and entrapping the people of God if he can. That doesn't sound like an impersonal, powerless entity to me. And that may also help us to understand how verse 6 could represent for Jesus a real, genuine temptation. The funny thing about temptation is that we are very seldom tempted to commit impossible sins. I'm not tempted at all to call up Elon Musk tomorrow morning and to get in some rocket ship and fly to Mars and claim it as my own sovereign planet. There's no temptation because it's impossible. It can't be done. It can't be done yet, but it can't be done. And you would feel no temptation out in the desert to try and turn stones into bread because it can't be done. But it can be done for Jesus. And it was a temptation for him because he could do it. And unless this second temptation about kingdoms and power and authority, unless this second temptation isn't really much of a temptation at all, we have to admit that there's some element of truth in what this old liar has to say. That's what makes the devil so powerful. It's that he knows how to present those sins that seem just, just plausible enough to work. The things that you just might be able to get away with. And of course, he also knows how to paint them with that, that delicious candy coating that makes them seem enticing. And it's not until you've sunk your teeth into them and the coating begins to dissolve that you realize the bitter truth of what you're doing. It's one of the devil's most powerful weapons, deception through half-truth. You know how it happens, because you've experienced it. And the devil has come to you, and he's taken all the glory and all of the joy of your sin, and he's shown it to you in a moment of time, and then he's whispered in your ear, you deserve this. You'll enjoy this. Nobody's been paying attention to you very much lately. Nobody ever has to know. The dangerous thing is that there's some truth in there. And he knows it. And he knows how to present those things that are just plausible enough. And he knows how to snare us with those half-truths. Because the devil is real. And the devil is powerful. And folks, what we need to understand, seeing Christ going into the wilderness, is that the devil is defeated. That's the point of this passage, not just to show you how to walk the same road that Jesus has walked, but to show you the fact that he has gone before you. Christ is the one who marched into the wilderness armed with the Spirit and with the Scriptures. He went in and he stood firm and he was not shaken by these half-truths. Christ, our captain, our forerunner in the faith, was not caught by the temporary pleasures of ease and comfort. He did not give way to the self-centered shortcuts that were presented to him on his way to obedience. He stood firm because his ears were attuned to the truth of his Father, and his hands were strengthened to take hold of suffering. His shoulders were broadened to bear the cross of suffering and shame and victory. And he didn't do it just to show you how to fight. He did it because we've been losing the battle against temptation ever since the paradise was turned into the wilderness back in the garden. He went out to do it on our behalf. And because of his obedience, the head of the serpent has been crushed, just as it was promised. 
What we see here in Luke chapter 4 is Jesus drawing first blood. And he continues striking throughout the gospel for the next three years. He continues gaining back the land and, and the, uh, the place that, that the enemy has gained. And he's taking it back. And that final decisive blow is made on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem and in an empty tomb three days later. And John tells us the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And so what you see now in the pages of Scripture, perhaps what you experience in your own life about Satan and his temptations has to be seen in light of what Scripture is telling us, that Satan is a defeated enemy. Now, that doesn't mean that he won't still strike. In May of this past year, in, in Corpus Christi, Texas, a man by the name of Jeremy Sutcliffe was rushed to the hospital. He had uh, life-threatening injuries from a rattlesnake bite. He had to be placed into a medically induced coma. He was given 28 doses of antivenom. The normal is about four, by the way. 28 doses of antivenom, and to this day, he requires kidney dialysis on a regular schedule. Now, you may be able to chalk that up to here are the reasons we don't live in Texas. Until you find out that he was bitten by this rattlesnake after he had already cut its head off. He cut its head off with a shovel, and then later, after the snake had been lying there dead and not moving for quite some time, he came back simply to pick up the pieces and to dispose of the snake, and it latched onto his hand. And herpetologists tell us that uh, the severed head of a snake can remain alive for up to a few hours after it's been cut off, and it will strike at anything that gets too close. Folks, this is what we need to see of Satan. Why is he lashing out against Christ and his people? Because his head has already been crushed. Because he's already vanquished. Because he knows his fate, and he's trying to lash out at anything that he can before that curtain falls. But this is what you need to know. This is how we must think of the devil, so that when we face temptation, we are not surprised. We are not surprised and we are not alarmed because, yes, he's real, and yes, he's powerful, but yes, he has been defeated. And that's what we see in this passage. We see how far Christ would go to reconcile his people. And we see that Christ has crushed the serpent's head for the sake of his own. Please join me in prayer. Oh, gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your victory given to your people. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would cause us to stand not in our own strength, but to look to Christ, who is the one who is the victor for us, and that in him we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. O oh Lord, unite us by faith to Jesus Christ and speak often of his victory in our tempted ears. Guard us by faith and truth. Cause us to look to you and to rest in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.